0: Hi, this is Smriti Kirvanathan, your host for Health Forward podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. With the pandemic and war in Ukraine, there has been a drastic increase in poverty, reaching up to 95 million people globally. In the US alone, 40 million Americans face poverty. This leads to a lack of access to healthcare, proper shelter, nutritious food, and life led with peace and dignity. With the hopes of planting a seed to end poverty, today I'll be speaking with Daryl Flinkton Jr., founder of End Poverty Make Trillions. Daryl, welcome to Health Forward. Such a pleasure to
1: have you here. Thank you for having me.
0: So we'll dive right in. You are passionate about eliminating poverty what has inspired you to tackle the world's most pressing concern
1: like everything else is a personal story and I grew up in an environment where pretty much everyone around me was poor and so I didn't think about it as being in a poor community I just saw you know my friends and family and people and everywhere around me there were brilliant people there were not so brilliant people there were extremely talented folks and folks who weren't so talented and and I just as i got older i would go into more affluent communities and i got opportunities to really do things that people from my economic background rarely get a chance to do you know ended up being fortunate and attended harvard and oxford and got to work for some of the more prestigious companies in the world and honestly the talent levels weren't any different than what i saw growing up you know i i just saw that everywhere you go there's a distribution of talent and opportunities and Really, just in low-income communities, we don't get that chance. And so nothing drives me crazier than seeing wasted potential. So I just want to see the world understand that there's seeds everywhere. You know, we just got to make sure we give them a little water.
0: Well said, my friend. So taking a bold move, you kickstarted a VC firm called End Poverty, Make Trillions. And you single-handedly raised around $200 million dollars to invest heavily in organizations driven to make a social impact. Tell us a bit more about this.
1: So a couple points of clarification. It's not a traditional venture capital fund, right? So most most venture capital funds raise money and someone then manages that money for a fee and, and promises a return for investors. That's not what I do. What I do is I have a charitable organization that I go out and I actively seek donations and with those donations, I take those donations and I invest in ideas and companies that are going to fundamentally improve life for people in low income communities. And so I seek out social enterprises that I believe will yield a return, but any return is invested right back into that fund. And so it's not a for-profit entity. I don't, I don't get any kind of compensation for it. So just make, being clear that it's not, a, it's not a traditional venture capital fund. It's very much focused on how can we take capital that exists and put it in the hands of the people that usually are overlooked, i.e. people in, in low-income communities.
0: That makes sense. So share with us a little more about the type of organizations you're currently investing in and what kind of impact are they trying to make?
1: So from, a, from an investing standpoint, it's pretty simple of what I look for. I'm looking for companies that are trying to solve problems that disproportionately affect people living in low-income communities. And so sometimes that's relatively simple concepts such as there just isn't very much low-income housing. How can we get more? And then other times it's, it's, it's more complex than that. It's looking at different kind of extreme health outcomes that have emerged because people don't have access to quality foods. And so there are so many horrible damaging consequences to poverty. So therefore, there will be so many positive companies that can exist to help remedy that. But the core solution to poverty is making sure that people have a baseline amount of money. And so I'm often looking for companies that are doing workforce development, providing opportunities for people to create jobs in their communities. And then obviously the the, the primary thing that I'm focused on is passing legislation that would guarantee that each American household receives a grant equal to the federal poverty guidelines. Therefore, making sure that by definition, no one's living below the poverty line.
0: Poverty is a complex problem. But Daryl, you seem to reinforce that the solution is not just simple, but can be approached with elegance. The Seed Money Act is your proposal to address this issue. Tell us a bit more about this
1: act. Just like you kind of said, you know, poverty is a simpler thing than we want to make it out to be. You know, there's, there's plenty enough food in the world. There's plenty enough clothing, transportation, shelter. You know, over 10% of the homes in the U.S. are vacant. We just don't do a good job of making sure that everybody has access to them. And the best way in a modern market economy to make sure that people have access to a surplus of goods is money. And so what the Seed Money Act does is it guarantees that each American household receives a grant equal to the federal poverty line. And so instead of that happening once a year and kind of being this big thing that can overwhelm people, you split it up so that they get two checks a month over the entire year. If you do that and you just give it to everybody, you run into some economic problems and that ends up costing you about two and a half trillion dollars. And that's just realistically not going to get passed in the US. So we just have a simple phase out program so that as you start earning money, you pay back a piece of it until eventually you get to the point where you've pretty much paid it back. So you're getting the checks and you're paying it back into tax so that people like Bill Gates aren't getting extra money. And then the price tag drops down to about 200 to $400 billion, depending on how you slice it a few ways. And so for 200 to $400 billion, you completely get rid of absolute poverty in the U.S. And that, that's huge, right? Because anytime you do a cost-benefit analysis, you have to look at the cost side, and then you have to look at the benefit side. So we just laid out the cost, right? So 200 to $400 billion to get rid of poverty. But what's the benefit of getting rid of poverty? And so when you think about things like incarceration, when you think about foster care, food programs, all the things that we have to do to deal with the fact that there are people living below the poverty line, childhood poverty alone costs taxpayers about a trillion dollars a year. So spending $200, $400 billion to get rid of a trillion dollar a year cost is 600 to $800 billion a year in savings, or 6 to $8 trillion in savings over a decade. We recently did an analysis with a group policy engine where we did some sophisticated economic modeling to get an understanding of you know how much impact would this really have and on the low end we saw over a decade we're saving at least three trillion dollars by wiping out poverty this way and that's why the organizations called in poverty make trillions because it really is that absurd
0: i love your drive and intention so where are the blockers and what are your challenges right now in making this happen
1: you know there's a there's a reason why poverty still exists And the reason why poverty still exists is because people don't really care about people living in poverty. And that's the main thing that we have to overcome here is now that you can see that we've got a solution that we can get rid of poverty and not only can we get rid of it, we can do it in a budget positive way. Well, who has the power to change things? And the people with the power in our system are not the poorest people. So we need average folks to understand that they may not be living in poverty today, but they could be. And when that happens, do they want to live in a country where there's no safety net, where there's no system in place to make sure that they don't end up homeless? And even more importantly for them, it's that you're already paying taxes. So do you want your tax dollars being wasted on treating the symptoms of poverty? Or would you rather spend significantly less money, lower your taxes, and solve the root cause which is people just don't have any money.
0: So one of the most important parts of life, people experiencing poverty or under the poverty line is lack of access to healthcare. What are some proactive ways that you believe the ecosystem is helping people meet their basic health needs right
1: now? So when it comes to health, I think that's, uh, unfortunately that's a bit of a disaster across the board. And so when you look at people who are living in low income environments, Pretty much every health metric you can think of, outcomes are worse. And it makes sense if you know anything about living in poverty. It's extremely stressful. You are eating some of the worst food you could possibly find, very low access to quality fruits and vegetables. You're in environments where you've probably got very little greenery and just all kinds of things are just going to add a lot of different stress and anxiety to your life. And human beings are not designed to live under constant stress and anxiety. You're worried about, can I pay my bills? You're worried about the safety of your children. It, it's just not a good place to be. And you see it in the health outcomes. And so I think that first and foremost, just lifting that unbelievable weight off of people's backs, so that they're not concerned about, can I eat today? And giving them a chance to kind of climb that Maslow's hierarchy of needs and say, okay, now I can focus on my future. I can focus on improving my mental health. And that's what we need to see. And that's what I'm hoping to see with with the Seed Money Act. But in addition to that, you also need to think about just from a more societal standpoint, how do we change our views on health and make health a primary outcome as opposed to something that's a secondary outcome you worry about so that you can just go work harder.
0: So Daryl, what you're really saying is giving a value-based care, but also treating people at a 360 degree view. And in part of all of this, the big part of healthcare is data. And we all talk about social determinants of health. What are some innovative solutions you have come across that's really bridging this gap?
1: I think the biggest innovative solution for solving healthcare problems, especially healthcare disparities in low-income communities, is money. And so you're seeing a lot of physicians wising up and realizing that money potentially as a prescription is a big deal. And so if somebody comes into the office and you notice they've got some strange infections that you've never seen before. They've got gashes and wounds and they're looking at infestations in their hair that you haven't seen recently. And you're saying, okay, well, I need to treat all these different things. And don't stop and ask yourself, wait, wait, where's this person living? Oh wait, they're living outside. Ah, okay, they're living outside in an alley by a dumpster. Maybe that's the problem and not the medication, right? And so if that's the problem, we need to get that person housing. Well, how do we get that person housing? Turns out they have a severe mental health issue. And so working is just unrealistic for them right now, and maybe even for life for that particular person. So what can we do to solve that person's health problems? We need to get them consistent access to cash so that they can have stable housing. And then from there, we can figure out how to stabilize their lives and give them an opportunity to work if they can. That's a radical shift from how we think about healthcare because it's always what pill do i give you where in a lot of ways it's my lifestyle is the problem
0: so you're really asking us to stop band-aiding the problems and focusing on the root problem which comes down to money so share with us how do you believe this universal base income is going to be playing out or executed
1: So, you know, there's a lot of different camps who are thinking about this idea of giving people money. And so we saw it in the pandemic with the stimulus check. We've seen it in places where they have discussed something called a basic income or a guaranteed income. You've seen it somehow with the child tax credit or earned income tax credit. Well, there's lots of different ways to cut it and those programs all look different. The approach that I'm pushing for is saying, let's do something as simple as humanly possible with very little government bureaucracy that ultimately saves us trillions of dollars. And the reason why that ends up being really effective is if you just give it to everyone and then have a simple phase out program, you don't need to game the system and you don't need to monitor people for gaming the system because just everyone gets it. And so as an individual, we're taking away the conditions and telling you you need to do A, B, C, D in order to get this first and foremost, because someone going through an emergency it's probably not the best person to put a bunch of conditions on whether or not you'll help them. They need help and they're in a crisis. Help them first, and then let's worry about pushing them towards different things that we want them to do. And then the other piece is that when someone's living on the street, again, it's going to cost you so much more to deal with that person's healthcare costs if they're living outside than it would if you house them. So even if you want them to stop using drugs or you want them to move to another city, all these different things, just get them secure housing first, and then we can go from there. And then the cost of helping that person drops drastically. And so that's why I advocate this approach. And we're seeing Congress finally start to understand that this is a viable way to be able to drastically improve the social safety net in this country.
0: So Darrell, you've traveled the world quite a bit. How do you see America managing poverty versus other countries?
1: You know, it's it's tough to compare countries because you can't ignore the history of how that country got to that point. And so in the U.S., we've got the added problem that poverty is racialized. And because of that, whenever you're thinking about how do you improve programs for people, you can't forget about racism. And so when you go back historically and look at the invention of our social safety nets, there was always some kind of version of things where they tried to figure out how do you exclude people of color. And when people of color started to get access to these programs, they were demonized and often showed on TV the most common being the welfare queen trope that Ronald Reagan just pretty much made up. And so with that, we've got to go a different route in terms of getting to a solution that makes sense because we still are dealing with a lot of racism and people believing that the people who need help financially tend to be black or brown, which isn't true. So You look at poverty in America, most people living in poverty in America are poor white Americans. But that just isn't the story that we see on TV. And so you've got to deal with that context in ways that they don't necessarily have to deal with that in Europe and in other places. And so you oftentimes see in more homogeneous countries, they don't deal with that same problem. So they've been able to be a lot more rational and say, well, we're all Swedes here. How do we make sure that everybody in Sweden has an opportunity to win? In America, we don't say that because we're still dealing with dog whistles and racism, to be honest. And so we've got to work on getting people past that mindset of thinking poverty is a color thing. Poverty is a people thing, and it's an underinvestment thing, and it's a drain on the tax coffers of a country no matter what.
0: So there is a great quote by Bob Dylan, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Do you believe some people are happy exactly where they
1: are? I think those are two separate questions, right? And so I I love Bob Dylan, you know, and what he's saying there is something similar to what Aristotle said, and that poverty is the parent of crime and revolution. When you have people who are a part of your society who have absolutely nothing, they have no incentive to follow the rule structure. They have no incentive to respect property rights or anything else, because the system that you've created fundamentally is unstable for them. They can't eat following your rules, so they won't. And when you look at how we've created our legal system in the U.S., people living below the poverty line are oftentimes up to 15 times more likely to get arrested than someone who is not living in poverty. That's insane. What that means is that we've decided to criminalize being poor. And when you do that, you don't stop crime You just end up spending more and more money policing the poor, as opposed to helping them get out of that situation in the first place. Now, your second question about are there people happy with where they are, I think that's a fundamentally different question. Because when I'm talking about poverty, I'm talking about absolute poverty. Absolute poverty, as we define it in the U.S., is not having enough money for food, clothing, shelter, and transportation. And we measure that by the number of people who live in your household. And it's a single number for the entire country. And so to put that in perspective, a single person household in the U.S., the poverty line, the federal poverty guidelines are about $14,000 a year. One, four. That's a tiny amount of money. And for the average size family, which is about two and a half people, you're talking about around $20,000 a year. These are very low numbers. If we want to talk about people who don't have much but are living happy lives, those people have food. Those people have a roof over their heads. Those people can afford to clothe their children, and they can afford to get to and from work. And I think that that's an extremely important thing for us to be able to learn how to do: is be more happy with less. But being happy with less does not mean being happy not having enough food.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, this brings me to the next question: gun violence right now is clearly taking the eyes of the media, and we're all focused on gun control and restriction. But it sounds like you are saying poverty is probably the main cause for this. What are some recommendations or reflections you have in this space?
1: So when it comes to gun violence, I don't think that gun violence is something that only happens in low income communities. But I think that when you have people in positions where they're starving, they're desperate. And when people are desperate, they do desperate things. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of communities is people feeling like they have no hope and they'll do whatever it takes to feed their families. Aside from that, I think we also have a mental health crisis happening in this country that we tend to ignore. That mental health crisis is not confined to people in low-income communities. When you look at a lot of the mass shootings that are happening in America, they're predominantly coming from middle-class white males. And if we don't address the fact that there's this big group that is feeling so frustrated and giving up on the system so much that they're deciding to go and shoot children in elementary schools, then we've got big problems with ourselves as a country. And so I, I don't want to simplify the two in that way. I think there's a, a a lot of complexity in terms of our gun issue in America. But a lot of the crime problems that we're seeing here get solved by making sure that people aren't poor.
0: So, Darrell, how far are you from ending poverty?
1: I'm never going to be close to ending poverty, but we can. And so that's what I'm spending my time and energy doing is. I know I'm really good at math and policy and understanding how these things work, and I try my best to communicate that in a way that's simple for people to understand. But for this to actually happen, people have to decide that they want it to happen. We've got to organize and tell legislators that this is something that we think is important, that we want to see an end to poverty, and we want to save trillions of dollars in the process of doing it. And that's why I'm out doing the work that I'm doing now, is trying to get more and more people on board. Now, do I think that we're going to get this passed anytime soon? Actually, yeah, I think we will. I mean, the main reason why is you're seeing extreme instability on the bottom of the economic ladder right now. Inflation is through the roof. People are struggling to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, the government has been pulling away all the extra funding that people have been receiving, which is kind of boosting the economy. So when you look at the setup that we have economically right now, we're driving off a cliff at a very fast pace. And so I think that gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves, are we ready to do something big here to make sure that over 40 million Americans don't face the biggest economic crisis since the depression? Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, this is a heavy topic, I'm sure for many, and sometimes even maybe triggering for some. So when we have little to nothing, how do you suggest we practice an abundance mindset?
1: You know, when, when, you, when, you, when you have little to nothing, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do I have my basic necessities met? And if you don't have your basic necessities met, well, then you don't live in a state of abundance. You may live in a world of abundance, but you live in a society that has determined that you don't matter. And they determine that you matter so little that they're gonna deprive you of the most essential human needs so that they can either discard you or try to force you into doing something that you don't wanna do. That to me is a human rights violation and a huge problem. And the fact that so many people worldwide are living in that state is the shame of our generation. Now, once you get to the point where you have your basic needs met, well, then what do you do? Well, then I think it becomes a question of asking yourself what is, wealth? what is a quality life? And that to me is no longer dependent then on how much money you have. If someone wants to pursue wealth and riches and thinks that that's where they're going to find happiness, then by all means, go ahead. You know, Everyone's free to do what they want. I personally have been down that path and know it's a pretty empty road. I'd say there's nothing more important in life than community. And if you can surround yourself with people who you love and who love you back and figure out a way to get in touch with nature, get in touch with land, understand where your food comes from and enjoy that experience and just be glad to see the sun shine and see the sunset every day. I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to live life, but each individual needs to be free to go and explore that and figure it out on their own. But so much about abundance is realizing when you have enough.
0: I love that answer. So that comes to our last question. If you had to share three takeaways for the future of health, what would that be?
1: The first would be health is food. Whatever you eat is who you are. And we really have to start paying more attention to what we're eating. The second would be community is everything. People are healthy when we're social and we're surrounded by one another and we've got support systems. And that's both our mental health and our physical health, which really aren't separate things. But since we talk about it that way, fine, I'll I'll split it into two different buckets. And the third is smile, laugh, enjoy your life. When life is just all about work, it's just all about struggle, it's a depressing existence. And so the most important thing I think is, if you wanna be healthy, learn how to listen to your body and see what it wants. Figure out what it is that makes you have those deep laughs. Figure out what it is that makes you excited to get up in the morning and spend your time and energy doing that. Understand what your body needs when it comes to sleep and understand how to read yourself and your own intuition so that your life is following Mm -hmm. yourself. As opposed to following some arbitrary dream that somebody else lays out for you.
0: Daryl, thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to have you on Health Forward. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbhavan.